Hi, I'm Emma Casey, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Northumbria University and Editorial Board Member of the BSA Journal Sociology. Welcome to this special podcast recorded in March 2019 to discuss with Professor Diane Richardson her paper Rethinking Sexual Citizenship, the winner of the 2018 Sociology Journal Sage Prize for Innovation and Excellence. Diane is Professor of Sociology at Newcastle University, where she has worked since 1998. She has written for many years on the topic of sexual citizenship and is one of the leading international experts on this topic. Today, she will talk to us about the themes of her paper and will share her insights into future directions for sexual citizenship studies. So, welcome, Diane. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I want to begin by asking you about the concept of sexual citizenship, which you have written about for many years. Can you say something about how you became interested in sociological accounts of sexual citizenship and also how your work has helped to define the concept and make sense of relationships between sexuality and citizenship? Hi, hi Emma. Thanks for that introduction. Um, it's actually 20 years ago that I started to write about sexual citizenship. And in fact, the first thing I ever had published was actually in sociology. Um, so it's a kind of nice um, uh, link to to the, the, the Sage Prize piece. Um, I, I became interested in a number of reasons um, looking back um, at that time. Um, I was interested in what was happening in sexual politics at that time, not just in the UK, but in the US and elsewhere. And um, having seen a politics, a sexual politics that was very challenging and of, of society and so on, we were witnessing a move towards a new kind of sexual politics that was much more about um, seeking equal rights. It was a politics that was demanding equal rights of citizenship for particularly lesbians and gay men, but also some bi and trans um, demands as well. And um, and um, this was a shift, a big shift. And um, at the same time, so you have this language of sexual citizenship emerging in politics. You also see at that time in sociology an increasing interest in citizenship uh, as a concept. It was kind of the new black. It was everywhere. There was new pet books. There were journals like Citizenship Studies coming out. And um, this represented in sociology, I think, a shift in critique in citizenship away from traditional kind of Marshallian um, models that we'd had about citizenship to new understandings of citizenship um, that expanded towards um, a whole range of thinking about citizenship in terms of belonging, cultural belonging and so on and um, a shift in the locus to ideas about how citizenship wasn't just about public participation but about our private life. So for example healthy citizenship, thinking about how our smoking, diet and so on, um, things that we can take charge of. So some people would see this as part of a neoliberal shift as well. Um, there was also work uh, on 
um, by feminists in critical race um, studies in critical race studies on how citizenship was gendered and racialized. Um, and the third thing that was part of my interest um, more directly was how at that time there was a renewed interest in feminism and in what was then the new queer writing on heterosexuality or term of the time was heteronormativity and the the interest <coughs> excuse me was how heterosexuality um, in particular institutionalized forms was uh, shaped our understandings of everyday relationships and in particular the kind of social theories and concepts were used to make sense of everyday lives um, and social relationships and that included concepts of citizenship so if you like the stage was set those three kind of influences on me were important at that time to starting to think about sexual citizenship and sociologists were, were very much a big part of this new uh, era, uh, arena of investigation and theorising people like Geoffrey Weeks, Ken Plummer David Evans, one of the first to write about sexual citizenship, were also writing about um, these issues at that time and in particular the key thing was that sexuality like gender, like race, like class informs our understandings of citizenship it's embedded deep in our concepts so it's not a universal citizen we're talking about it's one moulded in the male, white, able-bodied, heterosexual mould um, but there was a difference to the work that had been done on gendering and racialization of citizenship in that sexuality has been typically seen as private and therefore for some people with citizenship seen as intrinsically about public participation the two could be seen as a contradiction in terms so this was slightly different it was more troubling if you like to uh, you could call it a queering of citizenship in itself and what we're really saying was that citizenship is sexual citizenship mm -hmm. It's, it's actually um, uh, has assumptions, key assumptions about sexuality embedded deep within it in our constructions and models that operate. And this is why that shift in thinking about more privatised aspects of citizenship was quite important to allow this concept to emerge at, at the time. Okay, thank you, Diane. So moving on to the paper itself... Can you explain about how your recent <coughs> research um, discussed in the paper has advanced the concept of sexual citizenship? Um, I'm thinking in particular about the decentering of the current Western-centric yeah. focus of sexual citizenship. Yeah, um, if I can first kind of situate it in mm. that um, th the paper is part of a bigger project um, I've been involved in over the last two or three years and I, I, that was funded by the Levy Hume Trust um, and as I said having written um, about s sexuality and citizenship for some time what I wanted to do was look back um, at this literature and how the concept has developed um, and it's become a bit of a buzzword I think in that we've we've seen a lot of literature and a lot of discussion but sometimes it's used more and more with less and less clarity so I think I wanted to take a kind of critical taking stock and the paper's a bit of a springboard um, to doing this and, um, and out of this 
paper has grown a much larger analysis of these themes in the paper in uh, a book, Sexuality and Citizenship. But within that, the same aim has been to provide a critical rethink of the concept of sexual citizenship. Um, I guess, I think what I said in the book was to try and untether it as a concept from its moorings, which were largely European, mm -hmm. North American, as you, as you mentioned, and see where this might take us. Um, so the fact it's been a very Western-centric, not these are difficult concepts, Global North, Global South, West, and so on, but it, it certainly has been very Eurocentric, um, North American-centric as a concept. And I wanted to look at what that literature, what kind of constructions normatively of sexual citizenship and the sexual citizen were embedded in that literature. Um, and if you look at it, the primary focus I've argued is on a very liberal understanding of personhood and a very individualistic model of the choosing citizen, mm. someone who can choose our partner, um, whether to marry or have a partnership and so on. Um, and this is a very decontextualised view of sexual citizenship and indeed sexuality. Um, and I've argued it's very important, and I say this in the paper, um, how important it is not to decontextualise this and that we need to look at both cultural and, and structural constraints in thinking about citizenship and sexuality. And some of this, I think, has come out of some of the work I've done with colleagues at Newcastle um, working in Nepal and looking at how ideas about on women and sexual citizenship there and how our very Western notions were in fought, were, were um, challenged by those experiences. So for example, what if you we need to think about the limits to choice of money, access to privacy, um, freedom of movement, who has non-obligated time to engage in activities that one might call um, aspects of sexual citizenship. So for another way of putting that is what if your choices are not um, about individual autonomy and you choose your own partner for example, but what if it's more about a collective response that involves communities or kin and so on, um, both culturally it may be that choosing your sexual partner may produce uh, various forms of retribution. Equally materially, you need to have sustainable lives. So, for example, for some of the women we interviewed um, in the Nepal study I, I was involved in, it's still the case that um, marriage is a livelihood strategy. So their mm -hmm. choices are very limited. Um, in, in other parts of the world, China, for example, it may be about the expectations on you for family responsibilities and in terms of ca and care. Um, for someone who's elderly. So all of these things, culturally and materially, I think, are important um, and were things that I wanted to, to raise. Um, what I also want to make are two important points, though, in saying there are... It might be obvious to say if you have a concept that's produced in a particular set of societies, it won't be fit for purpose in other societies. I'm not just saying that. What I'm saying is that we need to think about how assumptions are not only problematic in non-Western contexts, but for many people in the West, these are an illusion. These kind of ideas about individuality and a decontextualized vision of sexuality um, 
are significantly problematic. So I'm not simply questioning the utility of a concept in a non-Western context, but how does this in turn, this, these kind of critiques unsettle our understandings more generally? And I think it's important that we start and think about who we imagine as sexual citizens. Mm -hmm. Do we think about people in residential care, the homeless, mm -hmm. displaced people, refugees? The minute you start to do this, yeah. you start to shake up the concept. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I tried to do that on the cover, that we need to kind of move beyond thinking about the kind of overdetermined groups of people we've thought about in terms of sexuality and citizenship and then ask what does that do to our thinking, what does it um, lead us to bring into the territories of um, theorising that we've had so far. Is that okay, yeah, no, answer your question? Great, thank you. Um, I wondered as well if you could say something about the impact that the ideas developed in the paper um, might have on sexual politics more broadly? That's a very good question. Mm. Um, we don't have enough time to go into <laughs> that, I think. But um, of course, there's a connection between the kind of theories we produce and the politics we get, I think. Mm. I was just thinking as you asked that question mm. about um, the kind of essentialist constructionist debates that were going on in the 70s and 80s in sociology and how important they were to a lot of the, the politics of the time for feminist and women's liberation movements and les um, who were drawing on social constructionist mm -hmm. theories to argue that change was possible. So you know, sociologists like Anne Oakley arguing that yes, gender roles could change, that you know the sex-gender binary allowed us to look at um, how gender could be constructed. And I think here we are now still seeing theories about sexuality being used to both advance causes uh, for equality and for resistance to those. And we see that, for example, in, in uh, various parts of the world, how essentialism or constructionism is still playing out as a, a rationale for or against social change. So I think here, as I said, uh, a little earlier, the literature on sexuality and citizenship actually grew out of analysing some of the shifts in sexual politics towards a rights-based activism um, and formal legal equality. And a lot of work since then has actually been looking at some of those, uh, how those rights demands have played out and some of the rationales behind them um, in different parts of the world. Um, and I think what that's done, and I guess some of the paper is calling for a conceptual return rather than just kind of looking at different rights claims and analysing those, is that that politics and theorising feeds into a certain kind of shopping list. I've mm. called it a shopping list mm. approach to sexual politics. So you have a number of single measures. They may be very important measures. I'm not, um, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that, so age of consent civil partnerships on um, employment law um, but it's a, it's a kind of list that we can go down and tick off and what worries me is that this lends itself to a discourse of success okay um, I'm not one of them but you hear people talking about post-gay politics mm -hmm. and gay is the word that's used and we hear you know this is a different this intersects with debates and we could again talk a long time about this but how people are beginning to talk about post-race post-feminism previously and I think we have to remember um, where this is happening again it, it's framed 
in certain ways and we need to kind of assert the remaining sexual injustices and inequalities that remain globally. So that's one aspect of this kind of politics, I think, that feeds from a certain approach to sexual citizenship that, that feeds into that. The second thing I want to say is that it's a politics, a shopping list of politics that I think is untethered from the bigger picture as we work down these single issues. So we're not looking at the kind of critiques of social orders, sexual social orders, that lead to the kind of inequalities that lead to mm. the demands that are on this shopping list. So we need a more fundamental look. Um, and I think the other thing, I mean, if you ask most feminists, did the gains in citizenship for women bring gender equality and social justice for women, I think you'd get um, a certain answer. I think we may gain, so I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I think this is a complex subject, but I think we have to be careful to seeing job done through mm. sexual citizenship. So my critique is, is very much yeah. about not just a conceptual critique, but to think through how this concept has become almost rarefied as a noun and what that does to, to social, so sexual politics um, and, and I think narrows it and I think the limitations of that as a way of delivering social justice mm -hmm. for people who are discriminated um, on the basis of sexuality yeah. in various forms. Yeah, and I think that kind of leads into my, um, my final question um, which is really about the future direction of sexual citizenship and um, sexual citizenship studies in particular and what you think that direction is likely to be um, and maybe if you could just say a little bit about um, what you think the opportunities for future sexual citizenship scholars might be. This is where I look <laughs> into the future and get my class. Yes, out. exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, I think just following on from what I've just said, I think the other thing about the politics side is that it's been very much focused on cultural recognition. And I think, particularly in a context of increasing and minority politics, and in a context of poverty, precarity, austerity, and I've made this point in the paper and subsequently in, in, in the book, um, I'm concerned that we don't bring together sexual and economic justice. So we need a much, you know, we don't see sexuality in material terms, when it absolutely is. Um, if you have to get married, as a livelihood, because otherwise you live in poverty. That's a, a classic example of, of how the two are connected. And also the, the view that very much we're dealing with people who are affluent and so on um, is, is a complete myth. Um, we have to look, and that tells us something about the failure to look at intersectionality in some of these debates. And that's one thing I think we really have to uh, move forward on. Um, not just on, on, on class and gender. I think gender, I, I would also say, and I think there's, I, I need to write more about this, and I think others do, yeah. is that a contentious area is where the focus of sexual citizenship and sexual citizenship um, rights and responsibilities may be in conflict with gender equality. Mm. And you know, I've mm. I've been at conferences where there's been some difficult questions around that, yeah. and I think we really need to to think through some of some of that. I think empirically we need to broaden out beyond mm. the who, the what, and the where of sexual citizenship. There's been an overdetermined focus on LGBTQI, though it's been primarily L and G, and it's been primarily in affluent societies, and it's been primarily on love, what's called love rights. There is some indications that's happening, and I think I just want to acknowledge, as I've done 
in my writing that we're not just talking about the homo hetero binary as the boundary of citizenship, it's about particular performativity of a certain kind of heteronormity, homonormativity, and that means that there are forms of heterosexuality we need to think about. I mean, stigmatised motherhood is a classic example of how um, some women have been castigated as bad sexual mm-hmm. citizens and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, conceptually, I and the paper was a call for a reconceptualization. So I've acknowledged that we need to think empirically uh, in a broader way. I think we also need to extend the critiques that hopefully um, some of which I've provoked. Um, what I've tried to do is examine sexual citizenship as a regulatory concept. Um, and it, others have highlighted this in terms of nationalisms and mm-hmm. how it's a regulatory concept in the sense of uh, regulating boundaries of nation states as so-called modern, um, tolerant, as against intolerant, inverted commas, backward. It's also being discussed in terms of uh, production of sexual selves and political subjectivities in terms of neoliberalism and how we're seeing a depoliticisation of sexual identities. And you know, and, and I, that feeds back into what I was saying about politics in, in terms of how it might regulate politics. Um, for me, what I think the underscoring key point in in the paper that it leads on to is how it is a regulatory concept in terms of sexuality mm-hmm. and our understandings more broadly. And I think one concrete example of this that I've raised is how we're seeing a re-essentialization of sexuality. So we're talking about sexual orientation in ways that that was rigorously critiqued. Um, human rights agendas move towards taking on board sexuality. The UN more recently in its free and equal campaign uses the term SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity as kind of universalizing categories. So um, in saying this, what I'm wanting to underline is the fact that sexual citizenship, sexuality and citizenship, is about social and economic processes. Bringing back the context into this, mm-hmm. rather than um, uh, decentering it outside of social and economic processes, um, in terms of individualising it as it is done in in the kind of Western-centric um, critiques uh, that I've I've talked about. So. In some sense, this might sound to people listening like I'm stating the obvious, but I think it becomes all the more important to emphasise this, that given the dominant framing of sexual citizenship I've talked about, where, as I say, the individual choosing citizen is often dislocated from cultural, economic, social conditions, and where, as I say, the, the kind of human rights turn in sexual citizenship, in advancing um, rights re-essentialises understandings of sexuality in terms of universal sexual categories. So I think there's a coming together of a number of issues there that kind of underline that point that as sociologists of sexuality we need to be thinking about what this is doing to our broader understandings mm-hmm. of sexuality beyond this kind of current uh, emphasis on sexuality and, and citizenship. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Diane. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, Rethinking Sexual Citizenship by Diane Richardson is available in Sociology, Volume 51, Issue Number 2. And her book, 
Sexuality and Citizenship um, is published by Polity and available in paperback. Can I just add one thing? Yeah, of course. Um, just to say um, thank you. Uh, and I'd just like to add my congratulations. I gather we don't know yet who it is, um, but we will do very soon to the next Sage Prize winner. Thank you. Thank you very much, thank Diane. You.